Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Mo, welcome to the War Room. Hi. Okay, let's get right into it. Let's talk about this thing called game theory. Um, the term that I've heard. I suspect what I think about it is probably almost all wrong. So <laughs> um, unpack what it means uh, at a high level and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. I'm just curious, where do you hear about it from? You know, there was, I think the first time I heard about it was, I'm going to say eight-ish years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And people were talking about... Um, game theory to help you get more stuff done to be more effective and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Um, but, cool. but, I, but I'm not even saying that's the right theory. So that's mm-hmm. just kind of, I kind of remember hearing about it and, and kind of going, okay, that's, that's, that seems interesting, but I'm not sure I fully understand yeah. what's going on here. So, so, so the classic places where, where you would have seen it originally. Um, I mean, if you go back way, way back, people were using it to understand pilot games. Um, and that, that's where the, the, uh, theory got its name from, you know, analyzing things like poker. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I guess during the Cold War, it gained a lot of uh, cultural uh, cachet because people were using it to understand things like uh, strategic interactions between nations and, you know, mutually assured destruction. Uh, you know, Kissinger uh, studied this stuff and, you know, thought about how, you know, if we can anticipate how uh, the Soviet Union is going to react, what's our best way to react but then they're going to anticipate that and they're going to, you know, prep for it. And, you know, so so this kind of logic of anticipating your counterpart and think that they're really rational and you best respond and they're going to expect you to be best responding and they're going to best respond, that kind of like back and forth logic of hyper-rationality was used to, to understand things like the Cold War and used during the Cold War to develop strategy. And, um, it, you know, it was also used by economists to understand things like, um uh, auctions, like I guess auctions has been, have been going around for centuries, and uh, there's some interesting type of auction dynamics and interesting type of results that you see. Um, so, for instance, in, in the Netherlands, they used to auction off these tulips for you know the price of like a house. They would go for it was like a, a soup, you know, a bubble. Um, they'd go for a ton of money, and if people didn't bid high enough, what they'd do is they'd crush the the tulip. And so this this item that's super valuable. If it, you know, if the price goes below reserve price without anybody bidding, they would crush it. And that's that's kind of surprising because it's, you know, they're crushing something immensely valuable. And that, you know, people were wondering why were auctions designed that way. And so, you know, centuries later, uh, Roger Meyerson eventually won the Nobel Prize for this, uh, you know, came up with this nice model that shows actually that's the best way for the auctioneer to maximize his revenue is to create a reserve price. And, you know, that takes into account how the bidders are going to behave and respond to the reserve price and, and, you know, they'll shade their bids less and stuff. So you're using this kind of logic of, you know, assuming everybody else is rational. How do you best respond? That same logic that Kissinger used to argue actually that, like, you could have less war if we have more powerful weapons. You you know, it it takes this assumption. Agents are hyper-rational. And it spits out often counterintuitive results, like uh, it's less war with bigger weapons or uh, crushing something of value could actually gain you profits. Um, and so that kind of counterintuitive result coming out of the assumption of people uh, uh, modeling people 
behaving strategically in a hyper-rational setting, that's kind of the, the power that game theory gives you. It, it helps you model those kind of strategic agents and get these kind of intuitive insights. And so I guess I was asking where, where you might have heard it from, because it's been used in various applications other than, and tell me when you want me to, to stop blabbing and move on. So it, it's been used in all sorts of other applications. So traditionally, it's used to understand this highly rational strategic behavior like auctioneers and bidders mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, um, statesmen. And, uh, you know, if you have all the smartest statesmen, you know, in the world sitting in the uh, uh, situation room deciding how to respond um, uh, uh, to, I don't know, a balloon flying over Montana. Uh, a, a, a I was going to bring that example up. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. I want to talk so, about that. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's kind of like a classic application of game theory is how do you think about these strategic settings? But those settings kind of assume that people are hyper-rational. And best responding. And, you know, there's this new recent literature in behavioral economics, which is kind of questioning that assumption. You know, again, another Nobel Prize dictator ran recently for saying, look, people aren't as, as smart as these models assume. Maybe that makes, <laughs> you know, game theory less relevant. And maybe that means like you don't want to you'll, you'll get bad advice and bad prescriptions if you if you design strategy, assuming your counterpart is is the, the smartest person in the world. Um, and, and so, OK, you might think, OK, that's one application of game theory and that's one kind of criticism that game theory will get and you know we could talk about how re relevant it still is or isn't in those settings but there, there are other applications of game theory which have different justifications so another classic one comes from richard dawkins which maybe you or some people in your audience are familiar with is he, he wrote this book i don't know i guess in the the 70s i think uh the selfish gene which is actually how i first learned about game theory mm -hmm. and the selfish gene talks about um how you can understand animal behavior and you know uh, biology by thinking about everything from from the perspective of, of a gene and what helps a gene spread okay so, uh, and thinking about the gene selfishly kind of trying to get itself into future uh progeny what kind of mutations are, are, are going to to do well and what kind of uh, genes are going to start to predominate how can we understand we, maybe we can use that way of thinking to understand things like where cooperation comes from why animals cooperate why why a being might be might sting an intruder even though it's going to die well because it it'll help its sisters which you know are, are closely related to it and because you know the nest is more likely to survive and okay so so the genes that cause the bee to to sting are going to even though that bee dies it'll get passed on through its closely related uh siblings so that's that's a classic argument from you know that Dawkins will talk about but he he uses game theory sometimes in these arguments and, and again because it gives these kind of counterintuitive assumptions uh, counterintuitive implications. The key assumption is the same: agents are behaving uh, rationally and, and optimizing um, in these kind of social, uh, social interactive settings. Except now that the like uh, idea of optimization isn't coming from them being super smart. You know, the bee isn't super smart. It's just genes can get the bee to do things that are super smart because that's what evolution does. Evolution is doing the optimizing. Evolution is getting the bee. To, to do these clever things and to, to best respond, even though the bee themselves aren't really good at thinking through strategy. So, so Dawkins kind of talks through things like costly signaling models and how that can explain like uh, long tails in, in birds, uh, you know, like the peacock's tail. Um, he talks about the hawk dove game and how that could explain animal territoriality. He, he talks about um, sex ratios, like why the ratio of males to females is about 50-50 across species. And all these things, again, like mutually shared destruction, uh, and like uh, reserve prices and auctions are these kind of counterintuitive results that you get out of simple game theory model, except here it's being justified with evolution. And so one final justification, unless you want to move on. No, no go, go ahead, because I come back. Go ahead. So one, one final justification we're using game theory is instead of biological evolution and instead of conscious 
optimization and, and people people being rational because they're really good at thinking things through you know with their system two reasoning processes a third justification is we're really good at learning we can learn from imitating others we can learn from reinforcement learning uh, you know trial and error doing things uh, um more frequently when, when they've worked out well and so when you when you learn things um that could also lead you to behave optimally even if you're not that smart and even if it's not encoded in your genes and so um you know we talked through in our book various various examples where social learning and reinforcement learning lead to like hyper rational behavior even when we're not aware of it and it often gets embedded in our taste so you know if you think about like why we like spicy food well it, it turns out spices are really good at killing foodborne pathogens and so you might like spicy food if you're in a climate where foodborne pathogens are, are a big issue like, like near the equator and so different different cultures develop different cuisines and and they also develop the taste for those cuisines and they might not be able to tell you the like rationality of where this taste is coming from but uh you know learning processes in this case that you know cultural evolution ha has shaped their taste to lead them to eat spicy foods because that, that leads them to be less likely to get sick mm -hmm. and so that, that's a, another way to justify optimal behavior again it's not conscious optimization it's not biological evolution in that case it's, it's uh cultural evolution or, or form of learning that's getting you to be optimal and so so that could be another way that you can justify using game theory and that that ends up being a, a key tool for explaining all sorts of aspects uh, in, in our human tastes and beliefs and ideologies, because those things are often learned or culturally evolved, and and uh, you know game theory can be applied there too. Okay, so if we kind of go back to one of the early examples, just for the listener standpoint, this will come out, um, you know, in a week or two, whenever for recording this. But the, the balloon has been shot down, so sometimes these were re released within a month or two. So for listeners' perspective, the balloon is down, and so. I do want to talk about that because one of the things that when you go, you kind of go through um, th this thought and this, this recent event watching the news around it was, was quite interesting. So have you seen the movie uh, princess bride? A long time ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you remember that there's a character, uh, uh, Vizzini in there and he has this whole thing about the poison and swapping the cups. And so it's, it's kind of that game theory probably being spoofed upon a little bit in the movie. But you take the example of the balloon, and I'm curious if this is kind of touching on this. My thoughts on the balloon were there are some some legal issues that you can you can take through, but we'll set those aside. I would presume, as someone who has no access to the government, that the U.S. government believed that the Chinese balloon posed no threat, A, or B, it posed a threat and they neutralized it. Okay, that, that that would be, and so that's why I let it fly across the U.S., is that, that somehow they either neutralized it before we found out about it, or they scanned it and they found out um, there is no threat. There is just a balloon and it's just a distraction. Okay. I'm not saying that's, that is the case. I'm saying that, that's what I would have. That's That would be my belief. And that's say that's that this comes from a libertarian who doesn't like either party. So I'm not, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. So then if I'm understanding game theory, what game theory would say is <clears throat> the Chinese might have developed a balloon anticipating that the U S would scan it. And so they built something that's outside of their scanning capacity so that then they could avoid the scan and in hopes the U.S. would let them float, uh, float the balloon all the way across, right? That's kind of the how this – and so then the U.S. would say, well, we anticipate the Chinese are going to do this. And so so it's kind of this never-ending mm – -hmm. and so that's kind of that first package of the Kissinger type stuff you're talking about. Is, is yeah, that a kind of a good right. summation? Yeah, of I, I think that's right. Uh, um, I think the classic type of game theory would study situations like that and and – you know, it's a uh, you would hear analysis like that. I, I guess I don't know enough about this strategy in this particular setting to know how reasonable that that assumption is. But but I think that's a reasonable question to ask as well. Could they have anticipated that we'd respond this way? And then in that case, 
could they have outsmarted us by? And so on. That, that's that's a very uh, uh, reasonable way, way to think about this. And, and and yeah, classic game theory type approach. I guess Thomas Schelling is a good example of this. So, so he talked a lot about, uh, he's got this book, Strategy of Conflict, where he'll think through logic of, of these kinds of situations. And he, he was uh, quite popular in the international um, relations community. Uh, you know, he he died, I guess, in the mid, uh, you know, in the first decade of, of the 2000s. Um, so, so, so he's not writing about the balloon, but you know he gave similar types of analysis, and and yeah, I think that that's a classic example of the first approach. But again, I I kind of just want to highlight in that example, you're you're talking about smart people thinking through consciously mm-hmm. what exactly is the best way to to optimize strategically, and that's I think a very popular approach to game theory and a popular application of game theory. And that's why you might see game theory in in uh you know public policy schools and and you mm-hmm. know international relations departments is with this type of analysis and i just kind of want to you know highlight and clarify for your audience that you know totally kosher way to use game theory but it does rely on this assumption that people are behaving optimally and that you can properly model and anticipate sure. these kind of contingencies and stuff Which... like that and that that's different from the way that we tend to use it uh in our research in our book where we're kind of relying on these social learning processes or, or individual learning processes or biological evolutionary processes to justify game theory. And, and we're focusing less on what happens in our conscious minds and less on human rationality and, and, and thought and more on the, the beliefs and preferences that we might uh, evolve either culturally or biologically. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, yeah. So what I would say then, just, just, just kind of move on to the, the next thing I think is, you know, the, the government came out and said, well, we don't want to shoot it down because, um, debris might injure people. Now, this is over Montana. I've never been to Montana, but I've been a lot, a lot of mm-hmm. the country. If they really believe that, then mm-hmm. any ability to consume to consider them as being rational, high thinkers is kind of now in question, right? Yeah, I'm not saying right. they did, but for the sake of argument, if that was actually, I think it was, it was just an excuse, but if it was the real reason, they said, oh my gosh, debris in Montana might kill someone. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, okay, so to your point, um, if you look at a lot of these historical things, when you kind of think about in the moment what's happening, what's happening, what's happening, and then afterwards you find out why they made decisions they did. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read about World War II battles, some of the islands we took in the Pacific weren't really strategic, and so you mm-hmm. would, you know, so someone's sitting there thinking, you know, and so it's it, it's and so I'm with you that there mm-hmm. is kind of this preconceived notion or perception maybe that we can kind of think through all these things, mm-hmm. and I do think perhaps on a simple level. That is kind of possible, but once you kind of go in level to level, it's almost yeah. impossible to include all of the yeah. all of the yeah. outside factors. I mean, I think also one thing that we would point out um, is that oftentimes, uh, including um, you know this balloon example or, or, or these uh, small islands in the Pacific example. Um, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on those particular subjects, but but I'm happy to go with the. Uh, um, uh, this hi- is for entertainment purposes only. So yeah, you're exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, that like oftentimes in these cases, you could imagine there's there's one level of what would be like optimal for, uh, you know, the country as a whole. And another level where you have to ask, OK, but politicians have their own special set of interests and their yes. own things that they have to worry about, like how it will look to the public or how the media is going to mm-hmm. spend. Um, and and that it might not be, you know, the U.S. as a whole's best interest to have waited, but it could be that, you know, Biden is considering, well, it might look like I don't care about the American people or like I'm acting hasty. And so appearances can often matter or, or yeah. well, he might, he might have even not had much of a reason to shoot it down at all, except for the fact that the right wing media was talking about how weak he was. Right. And That's so, exactly right. Uh, right. And um, 
So oftentimes these kind of like individual incentives, like how things might look to other people and having plausible deniability or getting, you know, maybe there was a low risk of, of it causing damage, but had it caused damage, um, people would have yelled and screamed and, uh, uh, you know, sure. that he was too hasty and that he wasn't careful enough. And, uh, you know, even if, you know, it's kind of puzzling that a small amount of damage or one person getting killed, you, you know, to a statesman that can look tragic and, 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 you know, you can get in a lot of trouble for killing one person. But when you think about strategic global affairs, one person is a small fraud compared to the, the, the stakes involved. Mm -hmm. And yet for the individual decision maker, it's not, you can get impeached over one person. I mean, you can get, you can get in a lot of trouble because it, it, our, our morality is shaped, you know, to think about things like, well, did you kill the single individual? And so, so even if it's a small risk to a small number of people that can still it, it be exaggerated in terms of public perceptions, in, in terms of how it makes us think about him as a moral character or how the media might spend right. it. And those are things that, you know, outside of a traditional game theory model, um, you might still consider when we think about more nuanced issues that show up in in, in politics where, where you might have more other types of game theory models that talk about like principal agency problems or you know which talks about like when you have one person making a decision on behalf of others but he can only be partially observed or he's only going to get uh, yeah. you know punished for certain types that can create the, its own set of interesting incentives and um that's also interesting to look at and then and then maybe just to add the last point is we also have you know moral intuitions that might not be optimized for these kind of situations but that spill over in these situations uh, or, or that people might be people who are judging us might be judging us using you know these moral intuitions that were shaped in other settings and so you know our moral intuitions have all these odd characteristics like well if he had actively shot this down and it killed somebody that would be he'd get punished for that a lot more than if like he just passively let it continue and then it would have uh, caused some some damage or, or killed somebody then he'd get blamed less because omissions tend to get blamed less than commissions mm -hmm. and that that's a pu puzzling quirk of our morality which again we can ask where that's coming from and that's the kind of thing that we might be able to uh, our toolkit in our book you know we talk about more quirks like that and that, that might have also played a role here yeah well oh, oh yeah i mean i think you're 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 it's 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 very easy for me to say what I think your hierarchy of morality is without knowing what it is. Mm -hmm. And even if I know you quite well, it's very hard to evaluate those things. So I, I think, and we talked about this before on the show, the biggest problem I see um, in these discussions is the either or fallacy is always committed. Either he's doing it because of this or because of this. And it's like, man, that could be a, a billion other reasons that you don't find um, to be as important. But for this in Biden, in this case, um, he might have evaluated, evaluated them differently. But let's go back to the, let's go to, okay, so, so that's, so I, I am at least in principle concerned about the ability to use game theory um, to play 40 chess and to outmaneuver everyone because of all of these factors. I do think though, maybe on a one to two step basis, you, you in certain situations, if you know your opponent quite well, th there is some justification there, but to really plan out long-term stuff, you know, mm -hmm. it's just too hard, too many factors mm -hmm. involved. Um, okay. But you were saying a minute ago that, um, you know, I'm in Texas. Okay. So I'm closer to the equator than some. Um, I like spicy foods, not as much as others, but I like spicy foods. And you're saying that that might be because at least where I'm at in the world is relatively closer to the equator. And so the influence has to do with something not at all related to food, but to my health. Mm. Is that correct? Is that yeah, right? Well, let me try and clarify a few, few uh, issues there. So, so first of all, I, I just want to make clear to, to your audience that the example I gave about spices doesn't yet use the game theory toolkit. It was mm -hmm. simply justifying that cultural evolution can lead to optimal stuff that gets internalized okay. into our taste. And okay. then if you add to that game theory, you can get some other additional insights. But that was, you know, before you add game theory, that's just kind of making the argument cultural evolution can lead to optimal stuff that gets internalized okay. into our taste. 
Okay. So that, that was one thing I wanted to clarify. Um, no game theory needed for that argument. Now, if we want to explain your, your, you know, moral intuitions about omissions versus commission, then we would, we would take that assumption that cultural evolution leads to optimal stuff that gets internalized into like your intuitions and tastes and add some game theory insights. But, but that's a different, that's an additional step. So, okay. so this is pre-game theory, just cultural evolution shapes case. Uh, let's get back to that and then go to your example. Okay. And I guess the one other kind of caveat I want to give is, I guess I don't know much about the history of, of Texan cuisine. So I don't know. I, I'm if, from if Louisiana it, originally. So there, oh, you know. so it's, it's a, uh, I see. So I guess Louisiana had uh, Cajun cuisine because of the African uh, uh, forced immigrants that. No, uh, we had it. Guard. See, this, this is what's interesting. They, they came, the Cajuns came from Canada. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they got kicked out. So they came down. Uh-huh. And so that's. And so then, uh, but I guess it was. French Canadians mixed with the um, the African slaves that brought food from their own culture that or, or, or people perhaps yeah I guess because uh, you know obviously in northern Canada the the Native Americans and you know the French people that that were colonizing it neither of those people had spicy food um, whereas uh, you know uh, the spicy food that at least that I'm familiar with, you know, you have in, in, in places in, in Africa and India and, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, Thailand, these are all places closer to the equator. And I, I'm guessing that there was uh, the, the forced immigrations from, uh, uh, from Africa is what brought it to um, uh, the Cajun cuisine. And then it was mixed with, with, with the French Canadian colonists mm-hmm. and, and that, that mixture made it, you know, particularly interesting and unique, but the spiciness came from, from the African okay. cuisine, but that's just my guess. I don't know how it got to, um, how it, it, maybe that's, that's just your case, or if there's also a culinary history in Texas that I'm not aware of, but I, I suspect that either has something to, I, I guess I'm not sure in that case, if it has to do with the immigration wave uh, or if the particular climate there is also conducive that generated its own uh, spiciness level. But one common thing that you do see it, well, is, well, I guess two common things. One is these cuisines closer to the equator, they do develop spicy foods, especially when they're, you know, warm climates where, where bacterial bacteria grow very, very quickly on meat-based dishes. But you do often see immigrants taking that with them. Um, so you do see, you know, uh, Indian people moving to England or the U.S., they end up, you know, opening Indian restaurants there um, and continuing to like Indian food. And I don't know, I had an Indian mentor in San Diego. And even though all of his kids were raised in the U.S., he was very careful to kind of train them since they were a young age to like spicy food. So he, he'd, you know, make, make uh, traditional Indian food every night for dinner. And his daughter at the time, she was four or five years old, he would serve her some of the spicy food and with a lot of yogurt. And he'd mix in a little bit of the spicy food with the yogurt. And slowly over time, he, he'd add less and less yogurt until she got more and more used to it. And so so he's developing this taste in her, which clearly in you know San Diego with you know the climate in San Diego and obviously with refrigeration and stuff, there's no longer the, the huge benefit to her developing this taste for spicy food. But one thing with cultural evolution, as opposed to the conscious optimization we saw with like mutually assured destruction or or the tulips, you know, auctions, when it's cultural evolution, cultural evolution is a slow process that lags. And so immigrants can take things with them. It could take several generations until the, uh, where the tastes are no longer uh, optimized. And so even if these tastes were good at keeping you healthy in India pre-refrigeration, you could still keep the taste even after you've moved to San Diego and you no longer have the same kind of conditions because culture cultures take, you know, cultures lag. Okay, yeah. So let me um, just ask a general question about spices and and, and and kind of unpack that, and then we'll come back to that later point. Please. So, if I'm understanding you, you're saying if you kind of took um, 
cultures, you went around the equator, you know, north and south, but you would find despite maybe uh, religious or ethnic differences that they're all going to be using some sort of spices that would help them um, to, 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 to their digestive and health. Um, so it, so it, it's not, so because that is a, if you think about the equator, there's a lot yeah. of different ethnic groups and religious groups, yeah, and stuff right. like that, but they still have one right. common fa- thread, which is spices in the food. Yeah. I mean, so this is a paper that goes back to, to Billing and Sherman, but we're just kind of citing it as an example where a cultural evolution led to optimization that got internalized in taste. But they they did a pretty good job in this kind of classic paper where they, they took um, cookbooks from around the world. And they looked at these cookbooks and they looked at, uh, you know, they reverse engineered like which chemicals are in the, the, the different recipes. Uh, and, and what they did find was a very strong statistical correlation between the climate, uh, you know, how, how, how warm it was, which is going to be tightly correlated with closeness to the equator. But I guess there's other factors. Um, uh, but uh, the, the climate and the number of spices in the, in the recipes, and then I guess the particular spice cocktails. So certain spices complement each other well at reducing foodborne pathogens at, at keeping the bacteria loads low. And so um, they kind of show that there's that statistical connection and it doesn't look like it, it's just like it culturally evolved once. It looks like that there was this convergent cultural evolution where various cultures developed this technique to kill foodborne pathogens by having these particular spice cocktails, particularly on meat based dishes where, where there's a particular concern about uh, bacterial load. And so if you were to look in, like you're saying, then like Canada, maybe England, et cetera, Northern Russia, you wouldn't find this same trend. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I guess part of why I give this example is because, I mean, you could see the statistics in Billing and Sherman's paper, but you don't really need to if you've, you know, if you have friends from from Scandinavia or if you've traveled the world a bit, you know that, you know, certain cuisines are much blinder than others. And and yeah, you know, Eastern Europe and Scandinavia is kind of known for being uh, pretty bland. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a friend from Norway come visit me and we were having I had Thai food and when he got off the plane, you know, he told me he was hungry. So I offered him some leftovers and he took one bite and he said, it's okay. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, it's uh, too much. Uh, right, exactly. So, so, and, you know, my mom, who's an Ashkenazi Jew also, you, you know, they came from Eastern Europe. But when I add, you, you know, pepper to my, uh, mm-hmm. you know, stir fry that, you know, she asked me to add the pepper after it was just salt for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it's, um, we all kind of know that certain cuisines are kind of famous for like the only spices, salt sure. um, or, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you, you talked about kind of the, um, just to keep the term simple, we'll, we'll say people around the equator. So people around the equator that are moving north or south away from the equator will kind of bring their recipes with them. Um, mm-hmm. And so then, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, they'll move to San Diego. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. they might even open an Indian cuisine shop. And so mm-hmm. over time, the need um, for the internal effect mm-hmm. of the spices is gone. But the desire to maintain it for cultural relevance or what it might be stays, and then well, for a time, for a time, for but a then time. eventually so, it's going to it's going to get Americanized or something. Or yeah, exactly. Somewhere. Because so, exactly. so I imagine like this daughter who was who was five at the time. You know, now she's a teenager. I imagine that uh, unlike her parents who only eat Indian cuisine, I imagine right. that she likes Indian cuisine, but she also likes pizza. Yes, and exactly. you know, her kids, I. I, I Maybe she'll train them to like Indian food, but probably probably not. You know, she yeah. probably won't put in the effort to make homemade, you know, Indian food the way her, her immigrant parents do. And so, you know, the 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 original culture uh, dies out. People get assimilated, and not always. And but but there's, I guess, the point of that example is there's some lag. So cultural evolution isn't optimized for the particular setting. You have to think about like you know where it come came from and when it was optimized. But there'll mm-hmm. be some lag. But 
you know, the lag will eventually uh, die out and eventually it will get re-optimized. It's just unlike conscious optimization, there, there is some lag effect. Okay. And so what about the inverse? So you have a bunch of Scandinavians that move down to India, let's say. Um, they want to bring their bland food down there. Yeah. The Indians say that dog don't hunt. Yeah. <laughs> but do you find the inverse happening where people who weren't aware that they need the spices move down to the area where their yeah. spices are needed yeah. and they eventually ad- adapt that because yeah. they're getting sick more regularly or, or whatever. Yeah. And someone's like, Hey, you need to try this food and it, or you know, whatever the case would be to help them out. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess I haven't, but too much about that example when it comes to, to spice, but, you know, happy to, to speculate with you, which is, yeah, they're, they're going to, you know, uh, get sick really quickly if they are in a place where they lack refrigeration. They'll, they'll start to kind of learn to like eat what everybody else is eating and they'll realize, oh, I guess the meat is is less likely to get them sick and they develop a taste for it just like everybody else. Um I think that's one possible mechanism. Obviously, nowadays with refrigeration, maybe that's less of an issue, but there's still other forces, you know, that maintain norms and stuff. So so it could still be that you still have pressure to kind of, you know, running room, room do like the Romans do. And, you know, those those um, uh, recipes and, 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 you know, it's very hard to get your own recipes from home, all, all the particular dishes you like. So so you might have other reasons to get acclimated to. So, so I guess, you know, in that particular example, I guess other things might, might enforce the, the taste changing. But uh, you know, maybe one other factor to bring in mind is people are stubborn. And so they also might have their own conscious, you know, thought processes about what exactly makes food, you know, healthy or optimal that culturally evolved in Scandinavia and they might bring it there. So so they might have, you know, dietary restrictions that they developed or religious beliefs about what cuisine. I mean, I don't know if that's true of any Scandinavians nowadays, but you could imagine um, when Europeans originally colonized, they had the all, all sorts of beliefs about what was the right way to eat. Mm-hmm. And and they would have fared pretty poorly in these kind of new environments. And, and that, that is something that you saw a lot. So so let me give one concrete example of that stolen from, because Joe Henrik talks about this in, in his book, The Secret of Our Success, is when Europeans went to, to the Americas, um, they saw the natives eating um, uh, corn, um, but the corn... Uh, you know, is, is a staple, you know, li- like rice, it has a lot of calories, but unlike um, rice, it's, it doesn't have all the amino acids that we need um, unless you process it. So, so um, maybe I'm forgetting the, all the biomechanical details, but there, there's particular amino acids that need, I think it's a, a, a base or an acid to be added, uh, which ash is one of the two, I forget which one, but when you add ash to it um, or when you add maybe lemon to it, um, it uh, re- releases uh, uh, it changes the, the biochemical composition so that now you get the full cocktail of amino acids that your body craves. And and so, okay, the, the Europeans came, they saw uh, the natives eating corn, they saw them adding ash to it when they cooked it, and they were like, that's disgusting, we don't need ash. And so they would make it without the ash. So they had this conscious belief about what makes food tasty. And they tried to apply that. And then they brought corn back to Europe at, without using the ash and without properly uh, imitating the way that the natives were doing it. And uh, giving it to people there to grow and to use as a staple for the diet. But now these people ended up getting pellagra and they ended up dying because they didn't have the right cocktail of amino acids that our body needs to survive. And so, so that's a case where, you know, if you don't properly imitate and learn from the cultures because you're, you're kind of stubborn and you're using your, 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 your um, overconfidence about, you know, your own rationality and ability to figure out what, what's, what your body needs, you'll make mistakes, um, mistakes that cultural evolution doesn't usually make that the natives got around. Mm, okay, so that's that's an interesting case study because on one hand, you have a more advanced society coming to a lesser advanced society, 
the cultural evolution you're saying um, knew something that the more advanced society didn't know. And so when the more advanced society took it back to the, to, to their home country, they weren't successful because they didn't kind of learn, learn the lessons. But the flip side is probably also true where a more advanced society probably could help a lesser advanced society by bringing in refrigeration, which would take with the need. So you can, I can see this going both ways where this lag that you're talking about, um, it can be a problem because it would be, it would be hard, I guess, to dissect which things from a culture are necessary to survival versus which things a culture does because they like doing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe part of the insight here is that oftentimes our conscious reasons for doing things, like how we rationalize it to ourselves, aren't all that smart. And you really do need to rely on cultural evolution to do it, to do the work and to come up with, with interesting innovations. And, uh, you know, Europeans culturally evolved useful weapons or, or abilities to sail around the globe, and that really helped them conquer other places. Mm. But like, that doesn't mean that all of their uh, culturally evolved um, ideas or technologies are going to be good in every every climate. And so, uh, uh, you know, they were particularly good at making weapons, but th- there's no particular reason to think that they were particularly good at like, you know, making food and in particular, not necessarily any reason to think they'd be good at making food that's not in their, their native environment. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, different cultures evolve to be good at different, different things. So how does one identify what is culturally evolved in, in like to, to be aware of this? So like, how do you, how do you or me, how do, how do we go through this process? And okay, this is something that's been developed through the culture I live in in Texas. And this is a good thing. And so I need this for survival. Um, or if I go to a, you know, to Africa or to China, oh, this is something that they're doing versus going, you know, I can fly to China now uh, or to Africa, or whatever. I can take some emodium. <laughs> I don't have to eat the local food. I can probably survive for a week or two. It, it'd be okay. But, but there's probably a, a balance there of being overconfident mm-hmm. in what you know about society. And so how, how do you, how do you understand or how should someone try to understand the bounds of this thought process? Because it, it seems to be a little bit, I can see what you're saying, but also if if you really kind of press it, it's a little bit gray. You can get into like safety issues, the building codes or um, all kinds of stuff. I can see this going too. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I agree. It's not, it's not immediately obvious what we could or should trust our own culture on. And it's, you you know, it's not immediately obvious how you would tell if you see a cultural practice, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, something that the elites have imposed that just benefits them, but harm, harms everybody else, mm-hmm. or if it's something that um, uh, evolved to take advantage of a psychological um, uh, quirk that we have that that isn't benefiting us, but for, for some reason is still psychologically uh, appealing, or if it's actually serving an underlying function, like in the spice case. I, I think the, the, we see examples of all three of those, and, and it's not always obvious how you disentangle those. Um, uh, yeah, I think that that's right, and that's that's something that's that's uh, worth considering. I mean, maybe, maybe one thing I, I try to do is, is just kind of have uh, a sense of how those different processes work and which one may or may not be relevant in this particular case. So I think about, you know, all these uh, beliefs that we might have in our culture. And I think, okay, who would those beliefs benefit? Are those people really pushing them or is there actually good evidence for it? And and so I'll try and disentangle that. So, you know, I guess when I, um, I don't know, like I'm not a, a um, a physicist or uh, um, uh, 
uh, uh, it's very hard for me to, for instance, look at the data. Maybe physics isn't the uh, a geologist. I, I don't, I don't know what the right field is, but I can't look at the data myself and know like what's yeah. the truth about climate change. Um, but what I can do is I can think about well, who has an incentive to like uh, lie about this and create misinformation about this, and uh, is there strong evidence that those people are are propagating a lot of misinformation about this? And um, you know, I read books um, uh, like uh, Merchants of Doubt um, uh, or, or um, Dark Money uh, by Naomi Oreska. I, I don't know how to pronounce her name, and, and Jane Meyer. Um, two very good books that talk about kind of how. Uh, 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 special interest groups have a, a strong interest in, in, in uh, lying to the public um, and creating doubt around climate change and uh, uh, spreading this kind of belief structure around um, uh, that questions the science um, and this ideology that has succeeded very, very well, particularly in, in Republican communities in the U.S., particularly after about 2005. Um, uh, that kind of, you know, that tells me, okay, even though I can't judge the science myself, I know that the entire scientific community believes one thing and they don't seem to have a strong, you know, private incentive or being pushed by people with a strong private incentive. Whereas the Republican Party does seem to be pushed by uh, 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 individual actors uh, like Coke Industry and, and the network of, of people that they work with. Um, that That network has a very, very strong incentive to uh, not want to do things to mitigate uh, climate change. And they also have a lot of power and they're investing a lot of a lot of that power and a lot of resources into creating doubt around this issue. And so, okay, I'll think about those kind of interests and that kind of evidence. And that, that'll tell me, okay, I should be skeptical of these kind of beliefs and I should be more trusting of these kind of beliefs because I'm taking into account, I have like this high order model in my head of, oh, uh, wealthy elites can do things to shape our beliefs by, by, by doing things like spreading misinformation. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of how I might think about this. But, but I agree with you that it's in general a very, very hard problem to figure out like which kind of beliefs are there for a functional reason or which ones are, are there to take advantage of our psychology or which ones are there um, uh, because they benefit at least. So, so let me give an example of the third class taking advantage of our psychology. Um, so uh, I have a friend, Helena Mitone, maybe I'm mispronouncing her name, um, but she, she did some really nice research on, on bloodletting, which is a practice that seems to have evolved culturally uh, again, independently, uh, uh, all throughout the world, many, many times. And bloodletting is this practice that when somebody is uh, is sick, um, oftentimes what, what uh, we try to do before modern medicine, and, and we kind of have this like psychological intuition that this makes sense, is you you uh, you know open up, uh, you remove some blood, and the idea is you're kind of like opening up a valve and letting the like bad stuff in the body like spill out. So like we kind of have this intuition that like, okay, if they're sick, then maybe there's the blood is like bad and needs to be let go. And it turns out that like, you know, the blood, that's the immune system is working through the blood. And when people don't have blood, like things get worse. And so uh, it's it's generally the case that when you do this practice of bloodletting, letting out the blood, you make things worse. But our intuitions about this, which, you know, seem to... Uh, be fairly hard to overcome uh, are really, really strong. And so despite the fact that it makes us sicker when you bloodlight, it's, well, it's very probabilistic and it's kind of a lot of people get their like jobs around this. And like there's kind of like this whole uh, career of these, these medicine doctors that, that pre-modern medicine who are doing this practice. And it's kind of hard to show that, that what they're doing is making things worse. And, you know, they didn't have good statistics. Of, okay. So this, this kind of culturally evolves over and over because it's taking a, a, a advantage of our psychological in, uh, 
impulse that there happens to be not be functional. So that's different from the spice case and different from the, the climate denial case. You know, in one case, it benefits the elites. In one case, it's taking advantage of our psychology. And in another case, it's actually doing something functional, which is what I would argue happens with spices. And, and you're right, it's, it's not always obvious how to tell these three cases apart, but it does seem like like different beliefs or, or, or tastes that we have could be could be driven by these three different um, uh, dynamics. Yeah, and so... Uh, we can play devil's advocate on the climate thing here for a second. Um, and so talk about this lag we had on a doctor, um, Joanna Moncrief, and she argued that, that serotonin is not linked to depression. I'm like you, I can't read the data. I ain't got no idea. So this is her word against whoever's word. Mm-hmm. And so she said that how I asked her, how do you measure serotonin in the brain? And she said, you can't actually, because I thought that was kind of a, an obvious question. And she said, no, you can't. It's through the enzyme breaks down. And so they have to go back in. Uh, they How fast the enzyme breaks it down, I think is how it works, is how they retroactively predict how much serotonin is in the brain. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's a case in which this was done in the 1960s when they started doing this measurement. Okay. And so up until now, assuming she's right, which again, I have no idea. Assuming she's right, you have an industry of, of, uh, of pharmaceuticals and government and all sorts of people, um, if she's right, who were wrong, whether they believed it or, or, or uh, whether they believed it right, because they fundamentally overestimated their ability to measure something that they can't measure. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you take that to something like climate change, and to me it seems the if you if you said that the climate is changing, of course the climate's always changing. The question around um, something like climate change is this 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 question of if the climate is changing, where. Okay, so that this first question is where. Um, secondly, would be is what's the relevance of that? And so, the relevance of a small island in the ocean is completely different than someone in, in Kansas. And so, when you start saying, "Well, I can deduce who it impacts and who it doesn't impact," it's like, well, how do you go about ensuring that you're not bringing some kind of preconceived notion to this? Because um, when you look at an issue like climate change, um, when these articles are discussed. Sometimes climate change is referred to by the local mill polluting into the river, right, and disproportionately impacting impoverished communities nearby. Other times, it's global emissions that that do this, and so that's all framed under one large debate. And so, whether it's the Koch brothers or whoever's funding this, there, there, there seems to be that that issue like that is talked about in a manner that's, I would argue, almost meant to be confusing because the, the local the local mill uh, or plant polluting. The neighborhood is not the same thing as the global emissions of China, China's coal plants. Like they're just not. They're just the economies of scale are too long, large. So, how can you ensure that the measurements a are right to your point? B that you do have a good understanding of who is being funded and see what the real relevance of it is, right? So, the, for the cultural evolution standpoint, how do we respond to the climate changing? So, if the if it is getting warmer, you know, ice caps are melting. How do we know how best to respond to those things? So how would you, how do you unpack that? Because that, 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 it's a very large issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and I think like what I would respond to to your earlier question, it's it, it's hard in any given case to know how to disentangle all, all the facts and figure out all the different dynamics at play. And, and I don't blame the average person for, for getting, um, for not being well informed about this uh, or, or getting confused about it. I mean, it's just, you could spend your entire life researching the topic and you you'd only know some subset of what's going on. Sure. Um, and 
uh, of course, most of us don't have the incentive to spend our whole life studying some issue like climate <laughs> right. change. It, you know, it's it's so much tangential data, to our life, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> In many ways, it doesn't matter. In many ways, you and I can't do much, you know, to change it. Um, you know, uh, um, yeah. So, so it, it's both very hard, and we're under motivated. Um, but what that does do is that creates kind of an environment where other actors who do have strong interests are going to try and uh, take advantage of our lack of motivation, lack of ability mm-hmm. to understand. And so so that's, I guess, maybe one thing that I'd be concerned about is in cases where people are under-motivated and, and uh, under-able to figure out what's going on, that, well, it, if we do have strong beliefs about it, then those beliefs are probably being shaped a lot by other people. Um, and then the way that I at least think about the problem, and it's, you know, it's somewhat a function of how much on a particular topic I've, I've invested in, like, you know, reading the original research, uh, I'll get you know, more, more finer and finer understanding. In this case, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just think, kind of, think kind of through about different people's incentives to like mm-hmm. be deceptive about different things. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I think scientists have an incentive to make it sound like their research is much cooler uh, and, and uh, more definitive than it actually is. Um, and so, so that's fair. I might be skeptical if I read a particular article that makes a particularly strong uh, uh, nuanced claim uh, uh, about, you know, uh, one particular phenomena being driven by climate change, I might think, okay, that that person might have an incentive to, to be exaggerating that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, in academia, the, uh, most of your academic colleagues are, are, are liberal, and you're going get, to get some kudos for helping a liberal cause. So to the extent that you write an article that um, helps the case that we need to do something about climate change. That's that's going to be seen as as a positive article to to write, and you'll you'll get kudos from your colleagues. So that might create some incentive to at least work on that topic and and to uh, you know maybe publish some more false positives. That's something that that you might worry about. Um, uh, and then other things that I would consider as well. Um, you know, people like in the oil industry or the plastics industry, they have they have a very very strong interest to make sure that they don't get regulated and that we don't have um, uh, um, uh, carbon taxes and, and and things like that, and then uh, you know what they're going to do is they're going to try and uh, um, uh, fund uh, institutes that are uh, libertarian or that sure. that are again get, uh, against uh, taxes against regulation, and they're going to fund researchers who are particularly willing to to publish things questioning this kind of science. And so those are the different incentives that are going to be at play. And and I'll slightly raise or lower my prayers on how much those incentives are actually shaping what I'm seeing in the right. literature. And I guess those two books that I mentioned before, you, you know, I guess, I don't know, in the, in, when I was in, in high school or in college, I didn't have strong priors on this, but reading those two books, which provided a ton of evidence about the role that that the uh, Koch Network is doing and and the kind of science that, that they've been um, funding to create doubt and, and the way that they would use techniques similar to how the tobacco industry created doubt around uh, um, smoking causing cancer and, and hiring some of the same same researchers to do 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 work that create doubt. I think I found their evidence uh, um, to be compelling, uh, uh, Naomi's evidence and, and Jaden Meyer's evidence uh, that like, oh, actually, these industries are playing a big role. And, and a lot of the role that they played is the Republican Party used to have a more nuanced stance on, on climate change, where you know we had Republican presidential candidates who who said, "Well, there is climate change, um, and we need to do something about it." To uh, Republicans getting primaried if they said things like that, and Republican elites and Republican talking points changed, and that had a trickle down effect. That mm-hmm. if you if you are part of the Republican coalition, you have to be uh, deny climate change, and so you know sure. they they presented pretty good evidence for this, and that made me think, okay, that's probably a stronger effect than the 
liberal bias that we talked about before, where you get kudos from your academic colleagues, and that's going to create some false positive. And I think that there's probably still that liberal bias, but that liberal bias is, seems to be less impactful than all that other stuff, in particular because of, of uh, you know, the the uh, uh, preponderance of evidence. So I guess, um, you know, the 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 number of studies that keep coming up by different organizations that are international, or from the number of scientists that keep showing over and over the the extent to which we're seeing climate change, and, and the extent to which uh, it's man-made. And so um, that makes me think that it's probably not just you know, the slight added bonus that you get for, for publishing something that, that helps the liberal right. agenda, um, that wouldn't be enough to explain the uh, the number of studies that we keep seeing and the number of organizations that keep saying that, that there's climate change. But, okay, uh, that's a different question, of course, from like what we want to do about it. And what we want to do about it, obviously, there's going to be huge, huge in, uh, incentives from different people to say say totally different things there. And and I, I'm, I guess, much more of an agnostic about, you know, how much of a problem this is and how what's the best way to handle it. And and that's certainly more, I think, uh, open for, for debate uh, and, and harder to, yeah. Yeah, and I would just say to the cultural evolution standpoint is that if you look at, you, you mentioned uh, plastics. I mean, you know, you can see my office, they can't see us, but, you know, everything is oil and gas. And so when you talk about cultural evolution, the, there's a sense in which for uh, emerging markets to get to a first world standard, the cultural evolutionary path would be to adopt a lot of the practices, at least uh, that we have, or there's some other path that's not there. And so when you talk about this lag in cultural evolution, well, emerging markets to kind of get to first world status, to use those terms, um, would have to use similar practices. There's there's there, there's just no other real way to to do it. And so I think the, the climate change is interesting because to your point, there's there's uh, people on the right who say, well, there's the climate's not changing at all. It's like, well, the, the climate's always changing. So that that's that's a question. And then the degree that man made influences is a question. And then is it localized discussion we're talking about or international discussion? Um, and there's there's a lot of questions, and we just kind of all throw it in one big basket. And so either you're a climate denier or you're a climate alarmist, and we can't actually have a conversation. But to me, the concerning thing that gets left out in this is if spicy foods can help you live longer, so can oil and gas products. And that's mm-hmm. that's just there's just indisputable evidence of that as well. And so by polarizing this conversation, we almost kind of go, well, geez, we're we're, we're potentially going to hold back people from living longer. They might can have their spicy food, but uh, uh, refrigeration, air conditioner, housing, roads, those are all things as well. So that cultural lag, um, that evol- mm-hmm. evolutionary cultural lag. I don't want to go away just quite yet to get everyone to to modern living standards. So I'll give you the last word, though. Yeah. Well, just to clarify on the on the spiciness, I don't think it's that. Um, the, the claim isn't that the spicy. If you eat spicy food in in India, you'll live longer per se. I think it's 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 more of an immediate effect, which is uh, the spice actually lowers the bacterial load on the food, so you're less likely to get uh, you know uh, food poisoning, and so so you're less likely to, to uh, you know immediately get sick. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's like long, longevity results i think it's like more of an immediate reaction of like well you get sick from from your lunch yeah. uh, um but uh um uh but, but uh, i know that that was just a, a you know a side point that i wanted to clarify I, I i think i mean i think you're right that that uh obviously uh oil and gas products are hugely uh um uh, do have huge positive effects on growth in the economy and uh, they're clearly very important and i uh I mean, I guess it's an interesting question why we, when we politicize things, we take such extreme stances where you either, you know, say, okay, there's no climate change at all, or like there is climate change, it's man-made and 
uh, we should, uh, you know, uh, ban, uh, uh, you know, private vehicles or something like that. And, you know, people take pretty, or we should, uh, you know, have blow up these tankers or, I don't know, the people take extreme stances and I don't know, uh, obviously there's, there's going to be trade-offs and, and we should consider that like, uh, you know, there would be big costs to, to regulating and taxing, but, uh, you know, and, and growth might be harmed, but I guess maybe just to, to add the last word. I think those benefits tend to be disparately felt in that, like, um, yes, you and I might somewhat benefit from growth, but you know, who really benefits is, is, is billionaires benefit. And they're the ones who would really pay the, the price if, if they had to slightly adjust their products so that it was less bad for the environment. And there are huge negative externalities that they're currently not taking into account because of the fact that they're able to prevent public policy from from properly internalizing those externalities, from properly you know taxing and regulating, and uh, I, I, I you know even though there might be costs to doing that, those costs are largely going to be borne by by them, and that's why they're willing to spend so much money and so much effort to prevent us from from having that conversation, and and, and that's why they would benefit from from uh, creating this climate of doubt, so that we don't have the conversation of what's the socially optimal level of of regulation or taxation. They'd rather us have the conversation of is there climate change and is it man made? Because then they're they're not being um, forced to to pay the cost. I think we agree there. Okay, um, Mo, this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed this. We're going to link to. Uh, I have your Google Scholar site, but you mentioned you have a website. So if you shoot that over to me, I'll link to that in the show note. I have um, sure. I have your books. I have your Twitter. Uh, I have a course website i believe and so um course website who, 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 who like hey i'm gonna go i'm gonna go learn from this guy they're, they're smarter than me they can actually take college courses i have all that stuff that we'll link to in the show notes anything else uh no that's great all right thank you so much for your time today thank you hey you made it to the end of this episode thank you so much now i'm gonna ask a favor if you enjoyed it would you drop a five star somewhere and if you really enjoyed it would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism... If you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, Avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.